0: Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger. I'm thrilled tonight uh, on the podcast to be jo- joined by Trevor Muir. Trevor, how are you? Doing good,
1: Kyle. How are you doing tonight?
0: I'm excellent. I'm excellent. We just got done talking a little bit. I'm, I'm in the last home stretch of my last week with kids, so uh, I'm doing well. It's been a crazy year. I've, I've been back uh, almost a full year from Texas, so it's been, it's been a wild year.
1: Yeah, you know, there's something really bittersweet about this time of year. Um, you know, like, so I, I teach mostly high school seniors and they all graduated last week. Um, and so part of me is like, yes, summer freedom, rest, you know, like canoeing. And then the other part's like, gosh, like I'm going to miss these kids. You know, like I, I, am not going to see most of them ever again, unless I run into them at the grocery store. Um, like they're, they're off. And so there's something uh, and when you're getting really invested in what you're doing there's there's this feeling come summer that's really excited, and then also like, wow, this is kind of the end of another chapter so right. I'm with you though i'm right. excited
0: yeah i uh I started teaching uh my career in Texas was uh i guess nine years ago now um and I had seventh mm-hmm. graders and now I have them like they found me on Facebook and they're like twenty two and they're like getting married 12. and stuff, and I'm just like, oh my, I, I can't believe how fast that's gone. So what are you doing now that all the seniors are gone? Do you still have to be at school?
1: I just have to be there. <laughs> I, I teach one group of freshmen in high school, so I, I've got them for at eight to nine a.m. and then the rest of the day I think and 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 uh, compile data. Those right. are the official things I'm doing, but I'm actually uh, just getting a little bit of rest. But I do still have to be at school, um, so I'm spending that time writing and creating and working some of the other stuff I do outside of the classroom.
0: Perfect, perfect. All right, so the podcast, what we want to do is just bring on uh, on teachers to let them tell their story, uh, with the hopes you know that they would inspire other teachers, but also like start to paint a picture of what's really going on in education in our country because there's you know a lot of times there's a negative connotation or negative perception of teachers and education but we want to start to kind of change that so to get us started could you just tell us a little bit of your backstory and you know why it is that you became
1: a teacher absolutely so when I was in middle school I had a really really rough period of life I mean for one it was middle school are you with me uh, yeah uh, yeah you're a middle school teacher right
0: uh no I have high school kids
1: Oh, you used to teach seventh yeah, grade.
0: Yeah, you used to teach seventh grade.
1: Okay, so so you know the struggle of middle schoolers. Right. Um, and you know, the sixth grade, it was like this super awkward period of my life. Um, it was the year my parents split up, which it often seems to happen that sixth grade is that really tough time of life. And so I was just like lost. And I remember I had this one teacher in sixth grade who just – it, and I know like as a teacher now, I don't think this is what he was doing, but as a sixth grader – I felt like he was doing everything he could to make my life miserable, you know. Um, And again, as a teacher, I'm like, no, that's not what teachers do. But as a sixth grader, I felt like he always wanted to make me pay for being a wild, lost, insecure little sixth grade, 12-year-old boy. Um, And so that really, really was a difficult part of my life, and especially the aspect that 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 math teacher brought to me. But at the same time, I had this other teacher, um, and his name was Mr. Peters. And I absolutely love this guy. Uh, You know, as I said, my parents split up that year. And I remember every single day Mr. Peters would sit down um, at the end of class and he would like close his door and not let other kids come in and he would just talk to me. Um, And he'd talk to me about my parents splitting up and he told me how his parents split up and he would talk about that and kind of just dive into it with me. We'd sometimes talk about girls or football. um, But it was like the first time a teacher really like – poured into me in a way that nobody else in my life was pouring into me at that time. Um, and here we are, gosh, 20 years later and I'm an English teacher. Are you with me? You know, I mean like he he had such a profound influence on me that, that this relationship he built with me carried on to the other aspects of his class. You know, I, I, I poured my heart and soul into making this guy happy. And that meant I did really well in English. And I really learned how to write that year. And I got into grammar and all the other stuff that he was teaching. But he started off with this relationship first. Um, And and this experience with Mr. Peters stuck with me for a long, long time. And so towards the end of college, it was kind of, well, what do I want to do? Um, And the the only skill I could really identify that time was my ability to communicate. I love to write and I love to speak. And there wasn't a whole lot of avenues, or at least in that point in my life, to do anything with that other than you know, help others learn how to write and speak. And so I decided to be a teacher, you know, kind of going off the mold of what Mr. Peters was to me um, and, and really having this idea in mind that I want to be that teacher who builds relationships with kids first, then can find ways to get them interested in doing English and history and all the other things that I've taught. So that's kind of my origin story. And then a lot has happened since then, but that was the true motivation originally.
0: Yeah, you know, it's so funny and and I can remember to back to my story and, you know, I hear kids talk about it now in the high school there, you know, they talk about how, you know, they were, they think they were just good in that teacher's class like Mr. Peters. They they thought they, that, that somehow he was, you know, just good or they were just good. That was their good content. But it's really that relationship to where, you know, that as a student, you want to fight for that and you want to do, like you said, do everything to make that person happy and the funny part is uh one of my teachers that i had in high school that was that person for me actually when i decided to move back got me a job in his school district that he had moved to so did you reconnect with him well actually like he had kind of i had taken he was a uh, history and econ and sociology teacher at my high school and then I was picking a college, and he knew I was going into education. He was like, "Hey, you should go to the school I went to." So I went through the same program he went to. Through and you know he was living in my hometown, so I would see him, you know, when I was back and just kind of bounce ideas and, and talk about professors. And then you know kept in touch with him while I was in Texas. And then you know he had he had been one of those people. You know, at that point when you're no you know you're late twenties to thirty, it's more of like a, a friendship thing because sure he, he and his wife are in their early forties. But I just, they, and he had just been for years. He'd been like, "Come on, you know, we got something. We'll, we'll find you something. You can move back. You can come back." And when I said I was, I was thinking about it. He, he's like, "I'll keep my eye open." And it just, it fell right into place for me.
1: Well, and something I find so interesting is that you know, you know, the work of a teacher is pretty temporary. The time that we actually spend with kids, you know, like Mr. Peters, and I'm not saying that I wasn't important to him, but I was one student out of his 150 students for one year of his entire career. Um, and, and my guess is, is that, as a matter of fact, I do remember Mr. Peters telling me in sixth grade, I can't wait to come to high school graduation. Um, and then the night I graduate, I look out into the crowd. There's Mr. Peters sitting right in front of me. So there was this long-term connection, but for him it was this very little blip. And I, I, I sometimes wonder if he and other teachers realize you know, how monumental they are kids' lives. You know, the the teacher who, I I mean, like you said, I guess you guys became friends in a way and built a deeper relationship, but I'm sure he had a much more profound impact on where you are now because of how much he helped you get into this career um, than he ever imagined he would when you were a kid sitting in his class. You know what I mean? Like, I I just went to my senior's graduation party this last week, and um, a kid who was, I mean, he was in my class, and we talked. I mean, we talked as much as we could, but he was a very quiet boy, and he just would sit there and kind of you know, laugh when he heard jokes and sometimes get into it, but for the most part, kept to himself. And then I was at this graduation party, and he gave me um, a note, and I, I took it home, and I opened up, and I read it, and it was just this big, long thing about the impact I had on his life and this thank you and all this. And, and, and I felt like I was telling my wife, I was like, I feel bad because it's like I don't feel like I poured nearly enough into that kid. Um, but I clearly I did in some way, you know what I mean? Like clearly an impact happened that I really didn't realize. And I, and I, I think about all the students we as teachers interact with, like how many kids are we impacting that we have no idea, or maybe not even like a big monumental, you were my favorite teacher ever, but had some type of way of changing their trajectory or pointing them in a certain direction. Um, for the, or planting a seed that sprouts later on and maybe they don't even realize it, but Um, I do think there's something very profound about the impact teachers have on students.
0: Yeah. And you know, the funny thing I I was just going to ask you that, you know, the question of what, what do you think the value of a great teacher is? So, so what would you say like the, the value of a great teacher is,
1: you know, I think the best teachers are the ones who see a student as a person before, um, an obtainer of content, you know. What I mean, as a student, even, but actually seeing them as a person who's who's entering their classroom with a story, one that they're living out, that they're um, that they're that was already going before the teacher entered their life. Um, and so, when when teachers realize that a kid is coming to their classroom with a story, with all these different experiences, and when the teacher recognizes that, um, they can do incredible things. You know, I had this one student named Sarah who was just constantly falling asleep in my class, this one day. And I remember the first time I went and gently, I woke her up and I said, Sarah, I need you to wake up. And she picked up her head and rubbed her eyes and said, sorry, Mr. Muir. Um, And then 10 minutes later, I look and I'm going on with my class, I'm talking to my students, I'm up front. And I look back there and Sarah's sleeping again. And so I walk over and a little bit louder, I say, Sarah, I need you to wake up. And she does the same thing, rubs her eyes, gets up. Um, Well, the third time, like 10 minutes later, I see her, she's sleeping again. And this time I'm like, okay, I need to make an example of this girl because clearly being nice isn't working for her. So I said in a loud voice from across the room, intentionally I said, Sarah, I need you to wake up. And she picks her head up and her face turns bright red. um, And she's embarrassed and she rubs her eyes and she says, I'm sorry. And for the rest of the class, she kept her head up. And And I'm thinking like, man, you know how to teach, right? Like you've got this pedagogy down. You know how to get this girl engaged. Um, and you made an example because nobody else is sleeping in your class today. And then at the end of class, I went up to Sarah and I asked her, Sarah, why are you sleeping so much in my class today? Why aren't you working? And she apologizes and and she says, oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. Muir. Um, I had to call 911 last night because my little sister's inhaler ran out and she had a bad asthma attack. So I had to ride with her to the hospital because my dad was working late. Um, and my dad picked me up this morning and took me to school and it was like, It was like this, like spear to the chest, you know, like it was as a teacher, you're like, whoa, I didn't know. I I didn't know that was what your life looked like outside of this place. I didn't know you didn't have a mom. I didn't know your dad works third shift and that you take care of your little sister. Um, And so obviously, you know, that day I apologized to Sarah and I said, I'm sorry. And she said, oh, no, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have fallen asleep in your class. And like Sarah, I would have fallen asleep in my class too if that was my story. Um, And it was like this big wake up call because this was in the beginning of my teaching career. But it was like this moment where I realized that Sarah isn't just this blank slate coming into my class ready to absorb whatever it is I want to teach her. You know, she's she's living out this story and she's got all these experiences. And I have to recognize that. I got to realize that she's not here just, she's here because she has to be here. Um, And I've got to find a way to engage her in spite of all that she's living through. Um, And that's a big part of what I do as a teacher is build those relationships now and learn those stories, but also find ways, how can I utilize them in the classroom? How can I, you know, take the fact that Sarah spends a lot of time by herself and works with her hands and, and is a really hard worker in her own way. How can I utilize that into what my students are actually doing in class? How can I give her opportunities to work with her hands um, and, and pull pieces of her story into English class. So, I think, in my opinion, and the best teachers in my life did that too. Um, I think the best teachers find ways to utilize and recognize their students' stories. Long answer, sorry. No, that's perfect. And and you know, it kind
0: of led me in, into the next question I wanted to ask you about. You know, we we all know that, or at least I shouldn't say we all. I feel like there are times where it's really difficult to do what you just said and see students as, as people when the culture of education at times makes them kind of not people. You really have to see them as numbers. So, so how do you in, in the culture that we have strive and, you know, work to make sure you're seeing those kids as people?
1: Sometimes they have to get in a little bit of trouble. (laughs) You know, to me, I I spend the first week of every school year, and it doesn't matter what class I'm teaching, whether it's AP, honors, regular, special education, I spend the entire first week doing nothing but team building and relationship building. Um, And, you know, sometimes it's saying, hey, write, you know, so we still sometimes do we do Englishy stuff, but sometimes it's saying, hey, write to me and tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me about your story. Tell me about your family. Um, sometimes it's, I, I, take my students outside of my classroom. We go for a hike in the woods. Uh, and, and there's not a whole lot of academic merit to that other than the fact that my kids are learning that they can be comfortable around me, that we can have fun together, that when you come to my class, it's not about, um, it's not just about the content. It's also about enjoying our time together. Um, and so, I, you know, I spent a whole first week doing that kind of stuff and sometimes I get pushed back from it. Um, hey, why aren't you diving right into curriculum? Uh, is there a whole lot of merit to taking them outside? Is, when you have students build towers with popsicle sticks and have these big competitions, what, how are you tying that to the Common Core? And sometimes I get in a little trouble. Sometimes I just have to find ways to tie content in. Um, you know, to go to your question, how do you build these relationships um, in spite of all, like, what the systems around us? Sometimes you just have to be really creative you know, you know that girl, Sarah, she loved, I found out that she loved to knit. That was one of the things she did with her spare time. Um, and so we did this big, awesome history project uh, where students were able to form their own businesses to raise money to give to this charity. And Sarah got really into knitting these hats that we sold, or that she sold, um, and she got to do it. And I gave her some class time to do it. She, she went home and she'd spend hours at home knitting these hats for this big service project. And in the midst of all that, we wrote papers about it. You know, they had to write historical fiction narratives about um, the work they were doing. And then they were in MLA format. And we found ways to tie in the expository, informative writing that's in the Common Core. And so we still tied in the content. You know, my students are still taking the SAT. They're still having to take final exams that are commonly shared throughout the English department at my school. But I try to find ways to engage students in spite of all that, you know. I love to have fun, but I also really want them to learn the English skills. I still want them to learn the history and, and all these things that I consider important, but I never lead with that stuff. I, I try to lead with the relationships and in the, the engagement and the stories and then tie the content in afterwards. Yeah. Or, I mean, secondary.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of down my list, when I'm bring it up because we're talking about it. I just saw your, your video and kind of your, your poem of school doesn't have to look like this anymore. Could you talk a little bit? Because I I thought that was such a, a powerful piece.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I say in that video, is it the one with my son? My mm. three-year-old son? school doesn't have to look like this anymore? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got a four-year-old son. He was three when I made the video, but he, he's four and we... This kid, we, we went canoeing this weekend, and every three minutes on that canoe trip, he's asking me questions about things and how the world works. Daddy, what are rocks made of? Why does the river move? Um, why is it cooler in the shade? Why, why are frogs... I mean, all, all these different questions. He was so... He's so inquisitive about everything. He just wants to know everything about how the world works, and there's nothing he's not open to learning. Um, and, and then I've got... High school seniors, and so many of them want nothing to do with formal learning in any way. You know, my son will sit down and he 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 will sit there and want to learn how to draw out letters and write letters. And then at the other end of the spectrum, I've got students that just can't wait to get out of our education system, Um, and that breaks your heart because you're like, well, I don't want my son to lose the zest for learning. You know, because if you lose your zest for learning, you're losing a big Excitement and enthusiasm for life. And I don't want that to happen. Um, but then I'll be with my high school seniors and we'll do a really engaging project. They'll go and interview World War II veterans and create videos. They'll write poems for a poetry slam that they plan. They'll do something like that. And all of a sudden their eyes light up the same exact way my four year olds do. Are you with me? You know what I mean? Yeah, like they, yeah. they get all fired up and it's like, wait a minute, that, there's still like this spark in there. Right. There's still this 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 like what's it called a pilot light that's just waiting to go off. And and I just I I feel like so much of the education system does a lot of things right. You know, I'm a product of it. You're a product of it. We we're okay, But there's so much of it that misses that that doesn't do anything to get that that pilot light to to make a big old flame. You know, I mean, to keep a kid's attention. To to utilize what they bring to the classroom, and and I don't think it's got to be that way. I think there's still ways of having a traditional classroom, you know, where where a teacher can go to the front and talk at times, and students still have to sometimes drill and kill. You know, if the best way to learn grammar. After the years of being an English teacher, I still feel like the best way to learn grammar is at some point you got to do worksheets and you got to practice it over and over and over. So I'm not saying you can't have traditional schooling. But that can't be all there is. You've got to find ways to engage kids on another level. You've got to make it fun. I don't care what you teach. You've got to find some way to make learning fun in every single subject. Maybe not all the time. But if if a kid says this class was never fun, I would raise my eyebrows to that. I I would question that a little bit and ask, why isn't it never fun? Because I I, I want my life to be fun. You probably want your life to be fun. Absolutely. So why would why would we not try to instill that in what we do in the classroom? All right, so
0: that's kind of a perfect segue to talk about um, your your book, The Epic Classroom. So could you talk a little bit about first of all, you know, where was that book born from?
1: Yeah, I love stories. My, my I, one of my favorite things with my kids is just sitting down and just making up and telling them stories, and they get so engaged with it. Even my two year old daughter. Doesn't need a book in front of her, a TV screen, or an iPad. She can literally just sit there for half an hour and listen to a story. There's something that about stories that just grab us. Um, I was, I was. Have you seen the movie Dunkirk? I haven't yet. I've heard the it's Christopher weird. Nolan war movie. Yeah, yeah. I watched it last night, and it's visually stunning. It's incredible, um, but there's not a clear narrative to it. Uh, so there's, it's not about a certain soldier who's trying to survive, and it's not about a battle plan. It's really just kind of like a snapshot or a portrait of this war that's going on. Um, And I remember by the end of, and I'm not trying to spoil it for anybody, but by the end, spoiler alert, the the allied forces won world war two. So (laughs) I got to break it to you. The Nazis lost. I hate to be the spoiler on this podcast, but I'm going to come out and say it. Nice. The Nazis lost. So there's, there's not a clear story to uh, that movie and it kind of lost me. Because, you know, a good story has this way of grabbing you. And I remember I once saw this TED Talk about this phenomenon called neural coupling. And it's about the science of stories and how when you hear a really well-told story, your brain physically transforms. um, And you remember what you heard. Way better than if you just heard that information as knowledge, as information. This is the way that a lot of textbooks or lectures deliver knowledge. Stories have a way of like, really making you retain that knowledge at a very deep level. And so I started thinking about that. Um, and I started thinking about some of the best experiences I had in education and some of the stuff I was doing with my students. And I realized you know, the units, the projects that were shaped like a story that had very real conflict that students had to solve, that had distinct beginnings, entry events that kind of move students into some type of journey where they had to go solve this project. And there was some type of climax to it at the peak of them solving that project. When you do things like that, students really retain the information. They really remember it in a way that a lot of schooling doesn't have the ability to make you remember a lot of the experience that I had in school. And the reason I remember so little, like of details of being in classrooms as a kid is I remember learning a bunch of information, putting it down on a test, discarding it, and then getting more and more information and then discarding it and doing it over and over again until I got out of school. Um, but, and so the Epic classroom is really about how do you shape a student's experience into an actual story? So that when they think back on that time, it's, it's shaped as a story and they remember it and they're transformed by it.
0: Well, yeah, and I think there's a lot to be said that the human race as a species, we're, we're genetically programmed. Our, ans- our ancestors, our farthest back ancestors, that's how they learned. That's the reason yeah. so much of our knowledge exists is before there was writing and reading, there was story. That's how our knowledge has
1: been passed down for yeah. millenniums. I, what did you see there's this there's this cave painting in France called Lascaux, and it's thirty-six thousand years old and uh archaeologists originally thought that it was just depicting the different animals that were in that part of France thirty six thousand years ago. But now they've determined by looking at it really closely and finding more and more images that it's actually telling the story of the hunt. So I mean that's literally thirty thousand years before we could write we were telling stories. There's something really like almost innate and powerful and human about stories.
0: It's like why wouldn't we
1: use that in the classroom?
0: Yeah, and I just and I just you know you think back to as well you know you told the story of your sixth grade teacher Mr. Peters, you know I I could think back to those stories of and it was so funny. um, My sister got married two weeks ago, my younger sister, and our Mm. our high school band director was a huge huge part of all three of our lives. So um, there, there's a you know there's a story between he and I. So my senior year, you know our our band is was successful, and then we moved up a, a division in marching band, and he was just on us and on us and on us. And this one time we were practicing, and he in not so many words, and you can insert the right cuss word, told me <laughs> I didn't know squat. But he he used a four letter. word. It started with an S. Yeah, he, and you know every time. I I see him. I still remind him of that day, (laughs) but it's not just because it was that day. It was because, you know, from that moment and, you know, that the four years that I had him, like it was such a developmental period and he was, you know, uh, it was in the Marine Corps band. So that gives you Mm. kind of an idea of how we operated. And that was such a transformational time in my life. But it was so funny because even I'm now 15 years out of high school I saw him two weeks ago, and I and he's he knew he knew that I was gonna get him with it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and it was a story for him too, right?
0: Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. So I mean, it's it connected with him in the same way. Yeah, and it's and it's so funny. I and we that. always remind him of one of his sayings. He, I don't remember where he got it, but he said, "When you were doing a really good show, that people would be throwing babies from the stands." <laughs> yeah, he used to just say that, and. Every once yeah. in a while, I hit him with that too. But like you said, I, we're so hardwired for story. And it's, I'm, I mean, and I look at my three-year-old nephew, I know with your kids, like my nephew can have a book and he will literally ask my, me or my sister or my brother-in-law to read it 20 times in a row. Yeah. Because he just wants to, he wants to hear that
1: story over and over. Well, just think about like the only time in our lives where like nobody is actually on their phone is when you go to a movie theater well, they're not supposed to be on their phone. If they are, I love to like chuck uh, like popcorn and maybe even yeah. my soda at them. But, you know, I mean, like you can literally sit there for three hours and look in one direction. Like, what is it that can do that to us? That you can literally be that captivated by something. And so, like, I, I think about, like, how do we intentionally and my, what my book's about is how do we intentionally craft the time into a story And so, you know, if I've got a set of content standards and I know that my students have to learn this stuff, you know, how can I make how can I create real conflict for my students to solve with this? So, um, you know, whether it's, you know, starting that business idea, there was something that really motivated students to create these businesses. It was real conflict that that unsettled them in a way. Um, and so at the beginning of that project, I had a guest speaker come in and that was the beginning of the story. That was the inciting incident in literary terms, um, that, that introduced a conflict to my students that wasn't there before and that disturbed them, that made them want to do something about it. And then, and, and, you know, if you do some proper planning as a teacher, you can figure out what, what can I do to introduce conflict to my students that's going to make them engaged and go do something about it. Um, And, you know, and then the rising action of the story is everything that the students are doing to solve that conflict. As a teacher, while they're working on it, whether it's creating businesses, whether it's creating documentaries or PSAs or whatever it is you want to have students make, you know, you can also tie in that content work. Like we talked about earlier, there's creativity to teaching. And so finding ways to tie in whatever it is you have to teach that curriculum into the authentic piece of the classroom. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think it's fascinating to tell stories with students. I think there's value in that. But also, I think you can take it a step further and actually create stories. Um, so even that at the end of that unit or project or story, you can have students reflect on it. Um, and then they actually tell that story of what they just experienced in your class. And all of a sudden that, that neural coupling is happening. Your brain is activated as you remember that story and, you know, what they learn and even the specifics of the content are being driven down deep. So it's not just forgotten after the test. So it's actually, you know, retained. Right. Right.
0: So and and I, I get geeked
1: out about that. Yeah.
0: And, and I'm hoping we can kind of geek out a little bit more, too, because I saw in your blog as well, you had a piece about the hero's journey and it yes. was talking all about, you know, the need for messiness and discomfort. So explain a little bit about what the hero's journey is and, you know, why we need to, you know, you said introduce conflict, create messiness and discomfort for kids.
1: So there was this mythologist, which is just what a job title. Can you imagine if, like, your Twitter bio, you said, like, you know, Kyle Kruger mythologist? It'd be be amazing. Yeah, it's the dream. I'm working towards it. So there was this mythologist named uh, Joseph Campbell, and he studied basically all of the great stories throughout all of human history. You know, from the story of the Odyssey and, and, you know, texts from the Bible and Shakespeare, all the way – to, you know, modern day, you know, you have Fahrenheit 451 and East of Eden, Grapes of Wrath, Harry Potter. He looked at all of these great stories. I don't know if he looked at Harry Potter or not, but it does fit and I'll explain it. He looked at all these great stories and he found that there's a formula to any great story. He calls it the hero's journey. And essentially every good story, whether the author intended it or not, has a hero that exists in the ordinary world. That, you know, this is the world that they live in, And whether it's good or bad, this is what it looks like for them. And then something calls them to action. It's the inciting incident. It disrupts their ordinary world and they have to go on some type of journey to solve whatever it is that disrupted them. And as they go on this journey, they, they hit obstacles. They run into mentors or Joseph Campbell calls them guides and they help lead them in the right direction. They help move them through these obstacles. And then as they're going along, they eventually start to return to the ordinary world, except now they return with what Joseph Campbell calls the gift of the goddess. So the return with the elixir, they come back to the ordinary world now changed, you know, all of their struggles, all of the, 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 everything they had along that journey, including running into this guide who helped move them along, changed them so that now they come back to the ordinary world as better. So that next time there's a conflict, they can do something about it. And so if you think about any great story, Whether it's the Odyssey and he gets called away and he has to return back to his home and he goes through all these perils. Or if you think about Lion King, you've got Simba who lives in the Pride Lands and everything's good and he's got this dad and he's going to be king someday and he can't wait and then all of a sudden his dad dies and his ordinary world is disrupted and he has to go across the desert. And he runs into Timon and Pumbaa, and they're these guides that help move him towards this better way. And, he, and, and eventually he returns back, and he defeats his uncle because now he's got the elixir, and he can take on anything in the world. He's transformed by the journey. Uh, and you can identify that in any great story you've ever heard, which I think is just brilliant. I think, I think there's something really special about that. Um, so in teaching terms, if we don't disrupt our students' ordinary world, if we don't shake them, if we don't give them real conflict that actually bothers them in some way and makes them want to move into action, how are they ever going to return with the elixir? You know what I mean? Like, how are they ever going to need a guide? You know, if I tell my students, okay, guys, at the beginning of the year, we're going to start in chapter one of the textbook. When we're done with chapter one, we're going to go into chapter two, and then chapter three and chapter four, and then we're going to take a unit test and blah, 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 blah. At what point are they going to get transformed? You know, when are they going to get that elixir? that makes them be able to take on whatever life throws at them. Um, And so I, and, and kind of like I told you earlier with that student, Sarah, you know she's got, she's been through her own hero's journey for a long time in her life. Um, And I think a role of a teacher in a student like that, or in really any any student is, you know, we're the guides, you know, we're the ones that encounter students along the way and we can help point them in the right direction or we can maybe offer wisdom or um, maybe we can kick their butt sometimes and uh you know give them the discipline or whatever it is that needs to help them move along so yeah. that's the hero's journey
0: yeah and i just and it's so funny because i i've i've read the book it's been a while since i've read it but it's it's such a powerful book and and i could look at myself like i left wisconsin eight years ago because i just it, i couldn't find a job in you know Fifteen months of after graduating college, I couldn't find a job, and Houston was the first place that offered me a job. Mm. So I went, you know, yep. and and grew, and you know, went through all those challenges, and now I'm. And, and I
1: bet I have a feeling that during those fifteen months, it was not very settling. There was probably a lot no. of stress.
0: Yes, it no, was no. very.
1: You you felt very good about no. That. It was very <laughs>
0: stressful, you know. And and I spent a year substitute teaching because I thought you know that's mm. what you do. That's what people told me that was the path. Sure. Like you substitute teach, you get your foot in the door and i realized very quickly after that year started that that was not a life that i wanted to live so i was like all right the first job i get offered i'm going i don't care where it is you know and it was and you know i have so many mentors and so many friends and you know and even the journey down there was was rough and it was rough a year ago you know saying goodbye to some people that you know had really become family to mm-hmm. me but but i really i really like what you said there, so in our in our world, in our you know so politically charged climate, mm-hmm. how how are you introducing, you know that that disruption or that discomfort to kids when talking about you know
1: the way our country is right now? Yeah, you know that's 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 an interesting question. Um, I've always had a policy that I'm never going to let my politics show in the classroom. You know what I mean? Like I want students, yeah. cause I know as teachers, we have captive audiences. We know that what we say carries more weight with students than other people. Um, and, and, and that's an okay, that's a good thing. Um, and so I really, when, cause my students always want to get fired up about certain things, especially my older high school students, they want to talk about the things they've read or they want to debate all this stuff. And I'm okay with debate, especially giving them space to do it and showing them how do you properly talk about these kind of things. Um, but I also, I'm really intentional about trying to bring positivity, um, to the discussion, um, not avoiding the darkness in our world. And, and, you know, especially this last year with the school shootings and and the deep frustration and fear that, uh, students bring after that kind of stuff. And that I bring as a teacher, I, I don't want to shy away from that stuff and I don't, um, but I, I always try to have – I always try to finish those conversations with hope about, okay, what can we do about this? Okay, yeah, we can talk about it, but what can we actually do about it? If you feel really strongly, student A, if you feel really strongly that we need to ban assault rifles, what can we do about it? Who can you write? Do we just have to settle for it or can we actually do something about it? Or a student who wants to protect the Second Amendment because he was raised to, b- to protect the Second Amendment and all that stuff. Okay, that's fine. How do we talk about it with each other? And, how, and what do you do about that? Because you, you have to realize that whatever you think is under attack by somebody else. And so I think you have to learn how to pick those things apart and have good discussions about it. Um, so, you know, I, I actually – my principal, who is just awesome – Um, at the beginning of the year, this year and last year, I had him come in and I just had all the students sit in a big circle in the room and him and I sat in the middle of the room. And for 30 minutes, we had a discussion and I had uh, some some discussion topics in mind, but for 30 minutes, five times that day, my principal was awesome and spent the whole day with our class. We just talked and we modeled really great discussion. We talked about uh, foreign affairs and conflicts. We talked about uh, local stuff and politics, and, and should we have school uniforms? Should students be drug tested to play sports? We talked about all these different things, and and we just modeled what good discussion can look like. And we both played devil's advocate with each other, and we never um, straight up agreed with each other. And we just showed students that hey, this is what it can look like to actually talk to somebody who you disagree with. Now most of the time, the principal and I we actually aligned on most of those issues. Uh, but we didn't show in the discussion. We we felt like, you know what, let's show kids. How do you have proper discourse? Because, um, yeah, you know, we have lots of issues in the world, and it's pretty politically charged and ugly at times. Um, but that's nothing new, you know. that We've had, you know, I, I love history. I love diving into fiction and historical fiction. Um, and the world's been a pretty ugly place in a lot of, not all the time, but a lot of the time um, in different areas. And so there's nothing new. To the terrible violence and and racism and segregation and all these things that we hate Um, but i do feel like that we're forgetting how to talk about these things i think yeah i think we're starting to lose our ability to to discuss and debate and have discourse that's that's healthy and enriching um and so i think teachers one of our roles and i don't care what you teach is to show kids how to do that properly
0: yeah and I think it's been a real I know for myself and I have a teaching partner, it's been a real gut check on you know my bias and what I'm bringing in because this is the first time in my you know I've been in in school since I was six years old that I at times have genuine fear like i mm. I, I have genuine yep. fear for my safety and and you know my kids, and I might think that I'm hiding that fear. But I don't think I am. I know there are times where, like my, and these, and there's probably nothing going on. But there are times when my guard goes up, and I and I start to like really look around. And I'm like, okay, is something gonna happen here? Is something gonna, you know? We I hear a
1: door slam in the hallway, and you were like, whoa, why did that door slam? Or why does that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, it's charged. And but it, let me ask you this: Do you feel like it, do you feel like it's okay? To let students know that you have that fear,
0: yeah, I, 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 we were we were very open, and I think, and the point I was going to try to make with that discourse is, is we need to be open about, you know, as teachers, you know, like you said, not making it political, but me expressing the fact that I have genuine fear. I don't think I don't think that's a political statement. I think that's more just me in in authenticity being like, and you know, when, when talking about. You know, the gun violence issue, I think we had a breakthrough just all of us being able to say, like, to some degree, we all fear something. Like, those Second Amendment people fear losing their guns. The other, you know, people fear. And I I, th- I thought that was just a piece of discourse that, that we did well just this year with our kids.
1: Yeah. You know, like, and then, like you said, like, I don't think teachers, we ever have to lie. You know, if a student asks us, like, I'll have a student come in and say, like, "Hey, did you see what the president tweeted? What do you think about that?" And I'm not gonna lie, I'm gonna be like, "Oh, that disgusted me." You know, what I mean, I'm sorry you had to hear that. Uh, I had a student who was in my class last year who literally left our school because how she was treated because she is from Mexico and she used to wear her poncho in the hallway and proudly wear it and and talk about her heritage and. Uh, you know, kids would like chant things to her, like we're going to build the wall. And like, I remember one day that a bunch of kids got suspended for school, from school, um, because of that happening. And, uh, kids asked me like, how do you think about that? And I'm like, I'll tell you exactly how I think about that. I think it's disgusting. Um, and, 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 and when I heard students try, you know, and I, when I had students try to say something about it, like, well, maybe she shouldn't wear that poncho in the hallway. I got no problem as a teacher either um, challenging them on that and making them justify that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that's wrong or right, but I, I, I feel like in my experience, I think it's okay to speak truth to uh, things I feel deeply convicted about. Again, not inserting politics, not telling kids that what their parents think is wrong or they think is wrong. But if I feel a conviction about something that I feel like is not making the world a better place, I feel like it's okay to uh, get that discussion going,
0: yeah, we had. I think we had a conversation. I had some students ask me recently. Um, did you see the video of the the lawyer in New York who was in a deli yes. and started screaming about how people and you know we were talking. They asked me about that. I'm like, and the point was made. We don't have a national language. <laughs> yep, we English is not our national language, and and being and for me, you know, they kind of want to know my perspective because I lived in. In Houston for eight years, sure. Where, a, a, if if it's not a majority, then it's very close to being a fifty-fifty split of people that speak Spanish and a ton of kids that I taught were you know English language that you know that Spanish was their first language and I just kind of I kind of said like yeah I think that guy's crazy and you know we talked a little bit and they said because the videos came out that that wasn't the first time he'd had a rant like that mm-hmm. so. I really like what you said, too, because I think our, our kids need to, be ch- need to be challenged on things like that, you know, yep. if you're not going to challenge them with their, their views, or,
1: or I think you have to challenge them in different arenas. Yep, Yeah, and, and you know, I love playing devil's advocate with students, and so sometimes my, my kids are like, oh, you're so confusing, are you, are you a Democrat, are you a Republican, are you conservative, are you liberal, like, I can't figure you out, I'm like, well, that's good, I like that. I like, I like to be able to push from all different sides. But I do think that, you know, when it comes to something like that, I've got quite a few different um, ESL students in my class, some from Spain, from some Mexico, Central America, South America. I want those students to know that at least in my class, you have somebody who values you as much as anybody else. That 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 you do not have to hide your heritage from me, and I want every kid in the room to know that I feel that way, um, so it 's not preaching right. to me it's it 's saying out loud that yeah. in, in this room uh, this is this is the way it 's going to be, um, and I hope that you would that you would see the world this way as well
0: yeah, you know and and just along that point too, another kind of conversation we have is i i 'm in small town, Wisconsin, you know about about ten thousand people predominantly white, but we're about 45 minutes from Minneapolis, St. Paul. So we do get a, a fee, an influx of a few African-American students. And we had a long conversation because one of our African-American students was really offended that there were not only other African-American students using the N-word, but she was continually hearing white kids use the N-word. And she was hmm. borderline getting her, like, she was going to get herself in trouble one of these times because she was, every time she was hearing it, yeah, you know, she was reacting with a little bit more anger and she just was so upfront and was just like, you don't get to choose what that word means. Cause there's a lot <laughs> of kids that say, well, oh, my friend is, my friend is black. So I, it's okay. I say it around him. Sure. And we had to have the conversation of, you know, and and we really were able to tie it into, you know, the way social media works is just because you intend a word to be, it, to have a certain meaning doesn't mean that everybody's going to know that that's the meaning you wanted to have. And, and those are some of the conversations, I think, like you said, and going back to what you said, you know, with the team building, that when you have that atmosphere, you can have those kind of conversations without, you know, making it political.
1: Well, and, you know, so like, like I said, like, I think even if you told students, hey, this is what you should think, that's bad that you do that, blah, 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 that, that will go in one ear and out the other for so many students, being told what to think on something. I think a lot of people think that teachers are just out trying to, like, put their worldview on students. And I, I don't think that's what effective teachers do anyway. But I do think that when students have real conversations that are productive, you know, if you, if you had students and this was happening and you say, hey, let's talk about this. Why might this be a problem? Why, why, would, why, why do you think one of these students might have a real big problem with a white person using the N-word? Usually at the end of those discussions, there is a consensus that's formed, you know, that where students are at least can gain empathy for how somebody else is feeling. Um, you know, when, when all those when those shoot when Parkland happened. Uh we had a really like long, like five-day discussion. You know, we made time to talk about it for a whole week. And uh um, and by the end of it, we I had I remember I had this one student in class who uh you know, had, like 17 for his birthday gift, he got like two assault rifles crossed onto his arm, like tattooed, like just straight up Second Amendment kid, like loves his guns. Um and he was so Like he was the antithesis to most of my students, who were like, "Why do we need these guns? Why do we keep having school shootings using these high-powered rifles?" Um, And you know, and I and I kind of like I would ask questions, but more than anything, I just gave a space for the conversation to unfold. And you know, and I would make sure it never got too heated. I'd let students turn up the notch a little bit, but I also said, "Okay, hey, hey, let's pause and make sure we're hearing everybody. Let's make sure we're staying respectful." And I I can tell you by the end of it that student was, you know, he naturally said, yeah, you know what, maybe we don't need all of this. Maybe there is like, maybe we can tighten up background checks or something like that. That soon came to that conclusion, not because I came up in the front of class and said, Hey, look at the stats. Look at, look at all this. Look what bump stocks are Look blah, blah, blah. He did it because he had a conversation, a, a good conversation where he was listened to and others listened to him, and eventually he came to that conclusion. Um, so, and, you know, so as I think about as a teacher and what other teachers can do um, to to make sure that students leave their classes um, better people, I don't think it's standing up front saying everything you believe. I think it's creating space for good un- conversations to unfold, um, and uh, kind of you know pointing students in a direction where they can have those conversations. Absolutely. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I could, we could have a conversation about that, you know, for. Till King no, of Tom, that's a but separate I, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I definitely want to be respectful of your time. So I do have a few questions to finish up with. First, um, I got to say, I'm excited. Me and my uh, my normal co-host who uh, is in the throes of a doctoral program. So he's a little busy right now to co-host with me. We're both going to be at, in Vegas at uh, Teach Your Heart Out. Which I'm really looking forward to. So, nice. can you just talk a little bit about what people can expect at Teacher Heart Out, and specifically what you're presenting on?
1: Yes. Oh, Teacher Heart Out is a blast. I just uh, did the keynote for that in March, um, and you know, it's just it's a celebration of teachers, and that's why I love it so much. You know, I, I've got I go to a lot of different conferences speaking, um, and I always have a great time. And there's always teachers there, but a lot of conferences teachers are there because they have to get PD credits. Or because they're being made to go to the conference, or they're there for tech training, which is all good. Or maybe they're going for a specific type of pedagogy, um, which is great. Um, Teach your heart out is really about celebrating good teaching. You know, there's some really great teachers there who you know just share about some of the stuff they do. And sometimes it does go into like specifics, which is great. But it's always kind of a spin that you know teachers are phenomenal people. And here's some ways to just do your work better, but also thanks for the work you do. So let's have a huge party to celebrate it. So it's one of the funnest conferences I've ever done. I'm doing the one in Vegas as well. uh, And it's just a blast. So I'm going to, my keynote is about the power of story. So I'm going to just tell stories and talk about how we can apply that and do it all in the classroom. So. It's a really good time. Awesome. We're looking I'm forward to it. I'm excited you're going to
0: be there. That's fun. Yeah, man. We're we're really looking forward to it and we are uh, we are we are on board for the uh, the cruise next summer which I'm just Love it. over the moon about. So that's going to be awesome as
1: well. Oh, so. I had to turn that one down. Oh no. It's killing me. I know. Yeah, I've already got some speaking gigs, two of them that week. So I had to turn down going on a cruise and that makes me sick to my stomach. Ah, That'll be good. So, all right.
0: A few final questions here. Um, What's the best advice you've ever been given? And that can be within teaching or outside. Mm, Best advice
1: I've ever been given. Um, This might not be the best advice, but I tell you what, as a teacher, this has been really, really useful advice. I remember... My, I was really struggling because in my first year of teaching, I was big, I was exciting, I wanted to pour everything into my classroom. And so I brought this energy every single day and the kids loved it. They ate up the energy that I brought and that a lot of first year teachers brought or bring. And, but there was a big group of students who really took advantage of that energy. They thought, thought oh, because he's so much fun, we can really kind of do whatever we want. And I remember I, it really started beating me down because I kind of lost control of my first class ever. I, it, was, it was like something got away from me and I wasn't able to reel them back in. And even at the end of that year, I, ne- I never felt like I got this class to where I wanted. And uh, a mentor of mine, who's a former assistant principal, he reached out when I wrote a blog about struggling with this. He said, you know, I, I always tell students this. He says, don't, mis- don't mistake my kindness for weakness. So don't mistake my kindness for weakness so it's telling students and, and and again this isn't the best advice I was ever given like my favorite but it is very very useful for a teacher like me you can we can have a lot of fun and we and and you can love my class and I can love you and you can love me and we can do these amazing things but don't get confused with the idea that I still need you to learn and I still need you to work hard and I still need you to respect me and I'm not your best friend um, and, and once we draw that line, we can do amazing things. And so I, that, I really took that advice to heart. I don't think I'd still be a teacher right now if I never heard that advice because I think I would have gotten burned out. Um, so that advice has allowed me to do a lot of other things.
0: Right. Awesome. All right. So, the best thing you've read in the last year? Like teacher books or anything?
1: Any, any, any book. Oh, uh, so I read it five years ago and then I read it again this year. It's the book East of Eden. By John Steinbeck. Have you read it? I haven't. Oh, before I see you in June in Vegas, I would love for you to tell me what what the big word out of that book is. It makes sense when you read it. Anybody that's read *East of Eden* knows what I'm talking about. Okay. I got it tattooed on my arm last month. It's that good.
0: Big word. Okay, so sounds (laughs) like I'm gonna find this big word, and then we're going to get matching. I'm gonna get a matching tattoo. When there I we go. Vegas. I love it. All right. Yes, used uh, to be it will rock your world. Okay, got it's it. Wonderful. Before Vegas, I can I can make that happen. That's a month away.
1: It's six hundred words, so don't overcommit.
0: <laughs> nice. All right. Um, your proudest accomplishment to date that can be within
1: teaching or, or outside. Uh, gosh, you know I love being a dad. I, I always I always dreamed of being a dad. Um, I uh, I I love my dad, but it, it wasn't, I never felt like it was everything you wanted it to be as a kid. And so now that I've got kids, I, I screw up all the time and I lack so much, but I, I just love the challenge of every day trying to figure out how can I be a better dad to these kids? How can I, how can I set them up so they have just phenomenal, adventurous lives? So that's a pretty big accomplishment to have these two kids right now. Awesome. Yeah. And I got a tattoo. That, that's my other big accomplishment. Nice. Yeah,
0: I'm. Uh, I'm still. <laughs> I'm still working on, you know, uh, finding finding the right person before the dad thing comes in. Yeah. But I can. It's usually important. Yeah, I can even yeah, say I, just, you know, like I have a. I told you I have an almost three year old nephew and a yes. almost one year old nephew that, and just the mind shift change for me with those guys has been huge.
1: Oh, doesn't it? it it's there's and three is such a fun age, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, we were, um, about a month ago, we had my dad's 60th birthday. And there's this book that my nephew really likes. I don't remember which one it was. And we were like, hey, Beckett, will you, will you read through this book with us? And he goes, oh, no, no, I can't. I'm just too nervous. <laughs> I'm and too I, nervous. And I just look at him like, I don't know how I you know it, how I to say it. that. So, all right. Before we ask you the final question, people want to connect with you, follow you. What's the best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah, you can follow me on Facebook. My uh, Facebook page is called The Epic Classroom. I make a bunch of videos and I write and I put a bunch of stuff on there. So you can go to The Epic Classroom on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at at Trevor Muir or on Instagram at The Epic Classroom. So would love to connect with you there though. Awesome. Awesome.
0: Well, I appreciate your time, sir. And and like I said, uh, I, I wish we had more time. Maybe we'll have to see if we can sneak some time in Vegas and sit down and We'd and, love it and keep the conversation going. So, um, last question: What do you want your legacy to be?
1: I want, I want every student, whoever comes into my classroom, to know that they were cared for. Um, I, I, I want them all to feel like that 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 somebody loved them. Um, a lot of my students come from homes where I'm sure they're loved in some way, but they don't always feel it. Um, And there's a lot of different circumstances for why that happens. But I think every teacher can, at the very least, let a kid knows that somebody knows their name, that somebody cares about them. Um, And I I think it's something we're all capable of doing. And I don't think it's big extravagant acts to do that. Um, So I want to live out every day letting the people I spend all my time with, which right now it's a bunch of students, um, I just want them to know that, that they are cared for. Awesome. Trevor Muir. Thanks for coming on the podcast, buddy. Hey, it was fun. Thanks for having me on.